0: Wrestling with God is an invitation to bring your questions, your doubts, and your frustrations to God, to engage in the struggle of flesh and faith. Those who wrestle acknowledge that they will never have all the answers, but know that the wrestling is still worth it. On this podcast, we hold space for those who have engaged in the struggle, and we invite you to join us as we sit in the tension of faith and doubt and press forward in wrestling with God. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Wrestling with God, Season 2. This is Episode 6 of Season 2. Welcome. My name is Gabriel Perkins Lawrence. I am uh, Part 1 of 2 uh, hosts uh, on this podcast, Megan um, has the episode off, um, so you just have me today, uh, and uh, it'll be um, a bit of a different episode, something something special, uh, something that we don't typically do. Um, Megan and I were talking a couple of weeks ago, and I had mentioned to her how at seminary I was uh, pr- uh, preparing a sermon. Uh, and the sermon topic and, um, and kind of uh, the, the text that I was preaching on and the, the theme of my sermon um, intrigued Megan and, uh, and she thought it would be a good idea for me to uh, uh, preach the sermon on the podcast. And so um, that's what we're going to do today. Um, I do want to say that uh, I am in the Episcopal Tradition, uh, that's where I come from. And the words uh, sermon and preaching, I know carry a lot of connotation for those of us that grew up in the fundamentalist evangelical churches. Um, and uh, it's taken a while for me to uh, recontextualize words like that and embrace them for what they are. Um, and so I hope that uh, that as you hear me um uh, read this sermon, preach this sermon. Um, if those words uh, carry some negative weight for you that maybe you can look past them a little bit or um, acknowledge them at least, but know that this is, not, this is not the kind of sermon that you were used to growing up uh, if you did grow up in the fundamentalist evangelical traditions. And so anyways, I hope that you um, will find some meaning in this Uh, and um, uh, pray that you, uh, I hope that you give it a chance. Um, So just a little bit of background on the sermon. Um, In uh, a preaching class that I'm in right now at seminary, um, we were uh, required to prepare a sermon to be preached in front of our class on a couple of topics, and my topic um, uh, is the Feast of Christ the King. Now, those are all a bunch of churchy fancy words. Essentially, the Feast of Christ the King is a day uh, that a lot of Christians around the world celebrate. Um, uh, and it's usually in uh, late November. Um, and uh, Christ the King, the Feast of Christ the King, the celebration of Christ the King Um came about uh, in the 1920s, just to give a little bit of history of what it's about, uh, came about in the 1920s, right after World War I, uh, in response to growing secularism and nationalism, um, kind of an answer to those things. Um, And uh, and so to kind of hold up Christ the King uh, as a figure of uh, um, uh, of love, uh, of divine love, uh, to contrast rising secularism and nationalism after World War One. I. Um, I think this uh, this feast day, the celebration, has uh, uh, has gained a lot of uh, relevance uh, in recent years as uh, the world over we are experiencing. Um, a drastic rise in secularism and nationalism, nationalism especially. And, um, and so I, I embraced this sermon uh, kind of taking an approach of uh, taking on um, empire, taking on uh, things that are antithetical uh, to, at, to what is at the core of the Christian faith. And uh, antithetical to a lot of the things uh, that if you grew up in fundamentalist evangelical traditions like I did, antithetical to things that we were taught in those traditions. Uh, We were taught, I think, in a lot of ways that Christianity um, uh, was something uh, that looked a lot like uh, capitalism, looked a lot like Uh, domination, um, manipulation, uh, looked a lot like those things, looked a lot like things that caused us to deconstruct. And so I'm kind of taking on those things um, in this sermon. So anyways, that's the background. The two texts that I am preaching from first is Daniel, uh, an Old Testament um, book, And I'll just read a couple of verses. It says, as I watched, thrones were set in place and an ancient one took his throne. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and flowed out of his presence. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood attending him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. And then the other text is the gospel of John. Uh, And I'll read these verses really quick. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you ask this on your own or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews but as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, so you're a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this, I was born and for this, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to to the truth listens to my voice. Uh, So the sermon is only about uh, between eight and 10 minutes long. And then after the sermon, I'll um, kind of discuss a little bit and give a little more context Um, and hopefully specifically contextualize it as it pertains to uh, what we are doing uh, in the deconstruction movement. My kingdom is not from this world. Wait, what did Jesus say? What do we do with this talk? How do we square it with the call we have to bring about God's kingdom on earth right here, right now? I know I have preached and proclaimed those words of bringing about God's kingdom on earth at least a dozen times. If Jesus's kingdom is not from this world, do we even have access to it? More or less, can we build it? These are all valid questions with which we are left when we hear these words from John's gospel. But they're not easy questions with which to wrestle. We've heard these same readings proclaimed over and over until they've almost lost their meaning lost their shock value. Perhaps all of those Christians really have it right, the ones who just consider this world a passing through on to the next one. I mean, this text certainly doesn't come against that line of thinking or logic, or at least not at first. I think we would be wise to zoom in on one word in the Greek that might help us recover some of the power that we should feel when we hear these words proclaimed. The Greek word for the word world here is cosmo. And a common translation of cosmo is indeed world. But this word in John's gospel is used to specifically refer not only to the world in which the ancient Greco-Romans lived, but also to the order of the world in which they lived. The way their lives were ordered Their religions were ordered. Their government and common lives were ordered. Jesus is not saying that his kingdom is out there somewhere apart from earth. He is, as he often does, calling his audience into a deeper way of thinking. He's telling them that the very way in which they ordered, he is telling them the very way in which they ordered their lives is not the way lives are ordered in his kingdom. In short, the way God does things is not the way we do things. What an indictment Jesus brings to us in this text. So what about the Cosmo of God? How is it ordered? And what does how it is ordered have anything to do with the Feast of Christ the King? the celebration of Christ the King. A hymn that we sang in um, morning prayer last week in chapel uh, answered this question for me, and almost completely. As soon as we started singing the hymn, this sermon was essentially written. I want to uh, um, recite a couple of verses from the hymn Um, now I actually sang these, I'll pause the sermon for just a second, actually sang these verses, uh, in the sermon when I preached it, but, uh, because this is a bit of a different context, um, I will, um, I'll just read the lyrics for you. Love that gives, gives evermore, gives with zeal, with eager hands, spares not, keeps not, all outpours. Ventures all, its all expends. Drained is love in making full, Bound in setting others free, Poor in making many rich, Weak in giving power to be. Therefore he who shows us God, Helpless, hangs upon the tree, And the nails and crown of thorns Tell of what God's love must be. Here is God, no monarch he, enthroned in easy state to reign. Here is God whose arms of love, aching, spent, the world sustain. <clears throat> Spares not, all outpours, drained, bound, poor, weak, helpless, aching, spent. These aren't words we are used to hearing on this day. We're used to singing hymns like crown him with many crowns or all hail the power of Jesus name. I've never heard this hymn that I just read the text to sung in grand procession at a celebration of Christ the King. We don't like those words. Perhaps we don't like to show, at least not too often, that the God we worship knows what it's like to be drained, bound, poor, poor week spent and even more that the god we worship in the person of jesus willingly chose those things if the god we worship felt these things then we must feel them too but maybe on some other day not christ the king surely not on the celebration of christ the king There's always a certain cognitive dissonance I feel on this day. The reading from Daniel talks about a God dressed in a snow white robe seated on a throne of tongues with thousands and thousands of attendants. And then John's gospel gives us Jesus standing before Pilate, bound, drained, poor, weak, spent. I wonder how much we lose when we more readily take on Daniel's portrayal of God than John's. I wonder how much of the gospel is marred when our stained glass and statues that fill sacred spaces are not colored with the God we get in the person of Jesus in John's gospel. We lose the essence of our very salvation when we take on a Christ that is arrayed in kingly apparel and earthly splendor and temporal power. For from the cross, Christ calls out to us to look into his blood and tear-stained eyes to find the cosmo of God there, to find our very salvation. Christ is no more a king than when on the cross he gives himself completely to us, bound, drained, poor, weak, spent. For what we learn from this is that our salvation is found not in the trappings of this cosmos, how this world is ordered, but rather in the cosmo of Christ where the kingship of Christ is seen in a God robed in grace and mercy and love with a scepter and orb in his calloused hands made from a sword that has been bent into a plowshare and in the other hand, the very body and blood of himself offered freely to us in bread and wine. And his throne, it's not a throne at all. a cross. And from that cross throne, Christ calls out to us and asks us to be a part of his cosmo, his order, his way of doing things. He offers us salvation in this world that is so different from our own. I've always loved where Christ the King falls in the church year. It sits at the end of the church year. It sits sits in the space that is between the year that has passed and the year that is to come. Indeed, our very experience of God's Cosmo is like this. We live out our Christian faith on a threshold that sits between what has been and what is to come, between the old order and the new. And from this place in God's kingdom, we are invited again to take up our cross. But we don't just get to waltz into this kingdom. Put another way, for us raised in the fundamentalist and evangelical traditions, we don't just get our ticket to heaven after saying the sinner's prayer and all is done. As Christ the King sits in this liminal space, so our setting down roots in this kingdom takes time, takes hard work, takes the grace and mercy of God. Christ the King could have been on any other Sunday, but its placement on this Sunday, in between the year that is past and the year that is to come, calls us into a faith that is a journey, into a kingdom that is present and is yet to come. And the time and work and grace and mercy it takes to set down those roots in this kingdom does lead to our salvation. Our salvation found in our taking part in Christ's own kingship, not found in white robes or thrones, but in the love shown to us on the cross. Amen. So that's a sermon. Uh, For some of you, it may be the first sermon that you've heard of in a long time. And if you're still listening, I appreciate your listening. Um, I mentioned that this was a sermon that I preached here at seminary. And um, I wanted to, after I preached again here, I wanted to take a little bit of time and kind of give some context for what kind of inspired the sermon, and um, and how it has relevance to us in the deconstruction movement. Um, to start, uh, I follow Pastor Brandon Anderson. Uh, many of you may follow him. He is uh, especially big in uh, 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 the queer Christianity uh, segment. Uh, he is a pastor, I believe, in the MCC church uh, and has contributed a lot to the deconstruction movement, especially as it pertains to queer folk in the church who have been abused by the church. And uh, on an Instagram story or something like that, one day he was asked by someone um, where he thought Christianity over the course of its thousands of years history, uh, where we got it wrong the worst or the most. And I'll never forget his response. He said, uh, we got it wrong the most, the worst, when Christianity in the early centuries of the spreading of the religion, when Christianity got in bed with empire, and that phrase uh, got in bed with empire. I hadn't heard it before and it struck me. And I didn't even quite know exactly what he meant. Uh, coming to seminary and now have, um, having taken uh, a two semester long course called History of Christianity in which we cover 2,000 years of Christian history in two semesters, um, I have a fuller understanding um, And I could go into history. I will spare you all a history lesson. Uh, But I will say um, what I think he meant, or what I uh, interpret what he meant, was um, Christianity at its roots was a rebellious, subversive religion. Uh, Those early Christians who followed Christ, uh, the goal of their faith um, in following Jesus, excuse me, the goal of their faith was following Jesus. And looking to the life of Jesus, we in the 21st century oftentimes find a very different person in the gospels. Uh, in the person of Jesus in the Gospels than uh, the person that our culture and society uh, has made. And what I mean by that, and Megan and I have talked about this a lot on the podcast, is that uh, too often the church has and continues uh, to get in bed with empire instead of being a church that sits on the margins with those who live and work and exist on the margins, calling the world uh, into a better way of being, a better way of living, instead of ushering uh, what is God's kingdom as Jesus described it over and over and over again, too often the church gives in to the temptation of partnering itself with empire, with sources, structures, organizations, institutions that have power. For in partnering with those organizations and institutions that have power, the church has power. The problem with power is that as we describe it and as empire describes power, it's very different from how Jesus describes power. It's very different from how Jesus describes God's kingdom. And it's very different from how we Excuse me, it's very different from how Jesus, rather, uh, lived his life and very different from how we too often describe the kingship or the kingdom of Jesus. What I was trying to get at in my sermon was a critique of Christianity getting in bed with empire. A lot of times, I mentioned in my sermon, a lot of times in statuary and stained glass, the person of Jesus is seen wearing uh, temporal, wearing earthly, wearing kingly um, vestments. So like capes with fur ermine uh, linings and crowns and holding um, a scepter and an orb, Uh, all of these trappings of Uh, kind of typical monarchical imagery. That is the vast majority of the time how we see Jesus portrayed in stained glass and statuary in churches. But those symbols are symbols of empire. Those are things, I think, that we have projected onto Jesus, we like a Jesus that is victorious and all-powerful, at least in the ways that we define power. A Jesus that, uh, that, that controls, a Jesus uh, that uh, approves of our controlling and our manipulating for our own self-interest. why I said in my sermon, uh, Jesus does not carry in his hands what we see as a scepter and an orb. And for those of you not uh, familiar with those terms, um, you've probably seen a picture of Queen um, Elizabeth, and especially if you've watched the crown uh, uh, at her consecration as queen, uh, at her coronation Um, an orb and a scepter. So an orb is a round ball is put in one hand, um, decorated with all kinds of diamonds and stones. And then in the other hand, a scepter, a long kind of reed-like pole. And these things are are, are, uh, symbols of her authority as the supreme monarch. And so we project those earthly symbols of power onto Jesus and put the, that scepter and that orb in his hands and our stained glass and our statuary. And in my sermon, I said, but Jesus in his hands, we don't see a scepter and an or, or at least we shouldn't. We should not put the scepter and orb in his hands for in his hands, in one of his calloused hands is a sword beaten into a plowshare. Sword, symbol of war, domination, violence. that has been beaten into, beaten as, as in like by a blacksmith into another metal tool called a plowshare, an instrument of farming, of gardening, an instrument not of violence and destruction, but of creation. And in the other hand, instead of the scepter and orb, we see bread and wine. We see Jesus giving his own body and blood for us. For Christians, we, we encounter Jesus in Holy Communion. That is where Jesus gives himself to us. And so, Jesus' power. It's not found in the trappings of how we define power. Jesus' power is found in the things that we define as antithetical to power. Jesus' power, Jesus' kingship, Jesus' very divinity is found in weakness, in humility in vulnerable, unconditional love. Jesus's power is found in second chances and third chances and 10th chances and 25th, 25th chances. All of this also known as grace and mercy. And from the cross, Jesus calls us into that way of living, calls us into that way of defining power. It literally turns the world upside down. And I mentioned in my sermon the word salvation towards the end. And I know that term for those of us who are deconstructionists, it can bring up all kinds of icky imagery of of pastors at the front of churches asking us to raise our hands uh, while everyone bows their heads, raise our hands if we're not saved, if we want to be saved and say the sinner's prayer. It may bring up icky images of those pastors manipulating us into that action by telling us that if we die on the way home in a car accident, we may not know where we'll go when we die. That's not the kind of salvation I was talking about here. And that's been another one of those words that I've had to redefine and recontextualize in my deconstruction process. I think Jesus saves us by calling us into this way of being because Jesus understands and tries to get us to understand that the way that the world defines power If we live into that way of being, it ultimately is self-destructive. If we live our lives to manipulate and control others, to dominate others, to get ahead of others through violent means, to go at it alone as an individual instead of working within community. Even though it may seem successful at first, those ways of living eventually lead to self-destruction. For Jesus understood that by defining power as humility and weakness and collaboration and sharing and community and love and grace and mercy, Those are the instruments of our salvation. Those are the ways of living that save us from how the world defines power that leads to self-destruction. In the deconstruction movement, I think we've been told so long Who Jesus was, what Christianity is, and too often what we have been told is directly linked, is even synonymous with how the world defines power and success and prosperity. We have an episode on the prosperity gospel that talks about this exact thing. I think that's been a lot of the reason that many of us left the church that many of us have deconstructed. We stopped listening to the BS because it wasn't true. I know that reconstruction or a re-entry into institutionalized religion is not the journey for everyone. And I absolutely wholeheartedly honor everyone's journey, wherever it is now and wherever it leads. For me, part of my reconstruction, I've mentioned a couple times now, has been recontextualizing words like preaching and sermon and sin and and kingdom and salvation. Taking those words out of the hands of a church that aligns itself with empire and how empire defines power and realigning those words with how Jesus defined them. That has been my reentry into the church. And indeed, my at, at the core of my calling uh, to be a priest in the Episcopal Church. it and, and, and the very reason I am at seminary. I hope that my preaching the sermon today was a help. I, I so appreciate Megan asking me to do this. I think a powerful thing that we do in the deconstruction movement, uh, one that is I think causing a cultural shift in many areas is uh, we hold the church's feet to the fire And challenge the church to do better, to be better, to get out of bed with empire. And for those of us who have stayed inside, to listen to Jesus, to actually listen to Jesus. And let that listening inspire how we live our lives and how we treat others. Thanks for joining us today on this episode of Wrestling with God. I'll make sure that in the uh, episode notes, um, a link is put to Brandon Anderson, Pastor Pastor Brandon um, Anderson's social media. He's written a lot of really good books, uh, uh, a lot of them with themes of deconstruction. Next time, Megan and I will be back together and we will be in your ears with um With something good, I'm sure. Uh, it's already in the works, but I do want to keep it a secret until we share it on the next episode. And we do have a couple of guests coming up um, as well that we're looking forward to being in conversation with. I think I'm going to today um, reserve my things that I'm into and my shit that you're not going to believe. Uh, for the next episode when I can share it with Megan. Those those things are just more fun when they're shared anyway. So thanks for listening today, everyone. Um, have a wonderful day, a wonderful night, wherever you are. And uh, we will be back in your ears soon. Just a reminder, you can find us on Instagram at wrestlingwithgodpod.